Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 is where we'll be at today as we come to the end of Jesus' parables. Matthew chapter 13. Uh, now, for most of us, we've been out of school for a couple decades. Some of you are still in school now, um, and so you, you can certainly relate to this. When we were in school, uh, you didn't need to have a personal response to the things that you learned. Here's what I mean. Right? We learn about math in school. One plus one equals, equals two. You learn how to do equations, right? But your personal thoughts about equations don't really matter. Right? Whether you like equations or not doesn't affect what the teacher's looking for, right? She just wants to see that you can do that equation rightly. Or history, right? Well, okay, you need to learn about World War II, right? But you weren't graded on whether you agreed or disagreed with the bombing of Hiroshima. You just needed to know important dates and people. Right, and to be able to memorize those facts and write them down. And your personal feelings about your history or your math teacher didn't really matter regarding your grade either. Right? You just needed to be able to memorize information, do equations, things like that, regardless of how you felt about it. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, when it comes to his teaching about the kingdom of heaven, it's an entirely different situation. Jesus is not just concerned with whether you know the facts of the kingdom of heaven or the facts about Christianity. Jesus is deeply concerned with your personal understanding and response to him and to his teaching. In our text this morning, we see two responses to Jesus and his teaching. From his disciples, we see the response of spreading the news of his kingdom. But from his hometown, we see a response of offense and rejection. And the question that our text this morning poses to each one of us is, what is your response to Jesus and his teaching? What is your response to Jesus and his teaching? Not what do you know about Jesus and his teaching, but what is your response to Jesus and his teaching? Let's read our text starting in verse 51. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asks. Uh, they said to him, yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who's been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we come to his word this morning. Our great God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have this, uh, this snippet of the life and teaching of Jesus Christ, your son, infallibly preserved for us on the pages of scripture that we might hear his teaching, that we might behold him by faith, that we might draw near to him. Lord, we thank you that you have given your word to us as a gift, and we pray that you would use it this morning in our lives and in our hearts, for we know that your word is living and active and that you accomplish your purposes through it. 
And so this morning, Lord, would you help us to consider our response to Jesus? Would you help us to consider how we truly relate to him? And Lord, I pray that you would help me as I preach your word to do it faithfully, clearly, helpfully, and that Christ would be exalted. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. We look at verses 51 and 52. We see the first response to Jesus, sharing the treasure of the kingdom. Now, for all of Matthew 13, Jesus has been teaching parables, these um, small illustrated stories that uh, teach a truth about the kingdom of heaven. And, and Jesus has taught these parables both to the crowds and to the disciples. And having finished teaching these parables, he asked the disciples a question. Have you understood all these things? Have you understood all these things? And we know Jesus is speaking just to the disciples here because when we go back to verse 36, we see Jesus leaves the crowds, goes into his house, and then has a private teaching session with his 12 disciples. And so we follow that down and he's asking this question to them. Disciples, do you understand all these things? Have, have you grasped the truths that I've been communicating to you through these parables? Is the seed of the kingdom falling on good soil? Now, these things, of course, refer to the parables that Jesus uh, just taught. And he's not just checking for factual comprehension, right? Did you memorize the important information that I, that I taught? He's really trying to see if the disciples are grasping the truths he's been teaching at a deeper, personal, spiritual level. Do they have a personal understanding of what Jesus has been saying? Remember, after all, uh, that the parables themselves are not just stories, um, they're spiritual in their very nature. Jesus teaches the parables to conceal truths about the kingdom of heaven from some and to reveal truths about the kingdom of heaven to others. And so now Jesus asks the disciples, do you understand the mysteries of the kingdom that I've been teaching in parables? And the disciples answer Jesus simply. They say, yes, yes. Now, I'll admit, when I was reading through this text, I was a little surprised at first because we see the disciples being so clueless, right, at times throughout the Gospels, where they just really don't seem to get it, right? Where, where Jesus is going this way and they're going that way, and their understanding of things is so far off. But on the other hand, we should expect them to say yes, because the Father is the one who's revealing these truths to them. And this is the first aspect of the disciples' response to Jesus. They are understanding what he teaches. Again, not just at an informational level. Anybody can understand information about Jesus. You don't have to be a Christian to know facts about Jesus Christ. This is at a deeper, heart-affecting level. Now, many people can understand the information Jesus taught, but not everybody's life is affected by Jesus and his teaching. Anybody can understand the facts and the information that Jesus taught, but not everybody's life is affected by Jesus and his teaching. And that's a mark of a disciple. Right? A disciple of Christ will, at some level, be personally impacted and affected by the truth of Jesus' teaching, his person, his kingdom, as an inherent part of spiritual understanding. Right? There will be an impact in their life. So the disciples say, yes, Jesus, we understand. We, we grasp the mysteries of the kingdom that you've been teaching us. Uh, we, we, we get it. And that leads Jesus to offer one more small parable here in verse 52. 
that illustrates the nature of the disciples' response and their responsibility in light of the kingdom of heaven. But before we look at the parable itself, let's look at the very beginning of the parable to see how Jesus describes his disciples. He, he says, therefore, every scribe who's been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like, and then we have the parable, of course, but notice how Jesus describes his disciples as scribes, as scribes. He doesn't say they are like scribes. He says they are scribes, trained for the kingdom of heaven, which is very interesting. We encounter Jewish scribes throughout the Gospels uh, multiple times, and they're rarely friendly to Jesus. They're usually uh, opposed to him. Scribes in the ancient world were expert teachers of the law. They knew the Old Testament in and out. They knew the details of the law in and out. They were experts. They were experts. They were scholars, really. Uh, it, it was a, a position that took a lot of time, training, education. And none of the 12 disciples are actually scribes, remember. They're fishermen, uh, tax collectors, uh, political terrorists, right? All kinds of people. None of them are scribes. None of them are trained scribes. But yet that's how Jesus refers to them here, and for good reason. Because as scribes, the disciples are being trained by Jesus, the rabbi of rabbis. They're not being trained to follow the Mosaic interpretation of the law. They're not being uh, trained to follow the rabbinic interpretation of the law. They're being trained for the kingdom of heaven. They're being trained for the kingdom of heaven. They're being trained to understand the kingdom of heaven. They're being trained to teach and proclaim the kingdom of heaven. And when we see them fulfilling this role in places like the book of Acts, when they're out preaching about Jesus, about his kingdom, where they're telling other people about that as they go into Jerusalem, uh, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and it's within this context of, of the disciples being scribes, taught about the kingdom so that they might teach about the kingdom, that Jesus gives this parable in verse 52. Uh, the disciples, as scribes who have been trained for the kingdom of heaven, are like the master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Verse 52. In other words, the disciples aren't supposed to keep the kingdom of heaven to themselves. They're not supposed to keep the treasure hidden away. They are to bring it out. They are to teach it. They are to set it before others who do not know about the kingdom of heaven, who do not have this treasure. And part of this comparison here to the master of a house, uh, I think involves a level of authority. The master of a house in Jesus' day was, was uh, basically the, the head of the household, literally. There was no one above him. He had full authority in his house. <laughs> And Jesus compares the disciples, who are the apostles, to this householder, this head of the household, which seems to illustrate the unique authority he gives them as his apostles, as his messengers, which allows them to speak for Christ on his behalf with his full authority. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 2 describes how Jesus spoke through the apostles after he ascended into heaven. But they still spoke with his full authority as his messengers. And that's why the whole New Testament has equal weight. Right? The, the letters in red have just as much weight as the letters in black because they're all Jesus' words. They're all Jesus' words. It all has equal authority. The Gospels aren't more authoritative than the writings of Peter or Paul or John because it's all God's word. It's all the Spirit of Christ working in them that God's word would be written down. 
And so when we read the writings of the apostles in the New Testament, we see them doing the very thing Jesus describes here. We see them bringing out treasures. We see them bringing out treasures, treasures about the truth of Christ, treasures about the kingdom of heaven, treasures about the mystery of the gospel. We read their writings and we, we, we learn things about the nature of God's redemptive plan and history unfolding, things that weren't really known in full, clear detail before being made clear. We see them talking in detail about what Jesus has accomplished for sinners in his life, living a perfect, righteous life, fulfilling the law, dying in our place for our sins, that by faith we would have those sins forgiven and receive eternal life. We see them expanding upon and clarifying and uh, building upon the foundation of Christ. The, the apostles, the, the disciples, they don't just understand the truth about Jesus' kingdom. They are uh, bringing out more treasure to build upon that. The master of the house, again, doesn't hide the treasure away fearfully, but rather brings it out. He shares it. He uses it as needed. And that's what the disciples are supposed to do with the truths of the kingdom that they learn. And notice how Jesus describes this treasure here. Treasures old and treasures new, which speaks to another aspect of the uh, ministry of the apostles. Being able to deal rightly with the Old Covenant writings and the New Covenant writings. Now, the Bible's a unified book, right? 66 separate writings compiled together. Really, it's a library, all of which is God's revelation to us. Now, within the Bible, we have uh, kind of this, this gap, right? You have the first 39 books that were written. We call that the Old Testament. And then there's this period of 400 years where nothing else is written. There's no revelation from God at all. And then, at the time of Christ, we have uh, what we call the New Testament that's written, right? These, these kind of two parts, all one book, all telling the same story, um, but in two sort of different ways. We have a particular emphasis in Scripture on the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Um, and that's why a few hundred years after the Bible's writings were completed, right, the New Testament was finished, the Bible was informally divided into two parts. We, we know that as the Old Testament which is just another way of saying Old Covenant, and New Testament, which is just another way of saying New Covenant. Of course, if you've uh, spent much time reading the Bible, you know the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. Those are the Hebrew scriptures, and they deal with the nation of Israel, God's covenantal dealings with the people of Israel. While the New Testament, or the New Covenant, tells us about how the Old Covenant stories, commands, nation, is fulfilled in Christ. Fulfilled in Christ, right? And that's kind of a simplification, um, but for the sake of time, let's just think about it that way for a moment. And notice that Jesus uh, doesn't say that the master of the house gets rid of all the old treasure, doesn't get rid of the Hebrew scriptures, doesn't get rid of the Old Testament in favor of only focusing on the new, but he brings out treasures old and new. That a well-trained scribe of the kingdom of heaven is bringing out treasures old and new. In other words, the apostles are not to ignore the Old Testament scriptures in favor of the new, but they're to bring out the treasures of the kingdom from both, right? Uh, from the parts of scripture that point forward to Christ and the parts of scripture that look back on Christ. As one commentator notes, Jesus probably means that as his disciples teach God's will, they will be drawing out the meaning of the Hebrew scriptures while showing how they are fulfilled and apply in the kingdom age, in the kingdom age. 
The disciples, in other words, will explain how the promises of the old are fulfilled in Christ and His kingdom. And when you read the writings of the apostles in the New Testament, that's exactly what you see. It's exactly what you see. Uh, you see the Old Testament all over the New. All over the New. For example, there's 433 verses in the book of Romans. 153 of those contain Old Testament references. Uh, there's 303 verses in the letter to the Hebrews. 210 Old Testament references. Uh, there's 105 verses in 1 Peter, and there's 72 Old Testament references. Highest of all, this may come as a surprise, is actually uh, John's Revelation, the book of Revelation, which has 404 verses with 605 Old Testament references. That's more than one per verse, right, on average. It's the New Testament book that has the most Old Testament references. So when we read the writings of the apostles, of the disciples in the New Testament, we see that they're not discarding the Old Testament writings at all. They're, they're not disconnecting from the Hebrew Scriptures. In fact, they are relying on the Hebrew Scriptures, right? And through the Holy Spirit, they are interpreting the Old Testament Scriptures properly in light of Christ. They're saying, hey, now that we know all this about Jesus, let's go back and read the Old Testament and, and really understand what God was talking about. Let's really understand what God was pointing forward to. They're bringing out treasures old and new. They're teaching us how to read the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew Scriptures, the right way, through the lens and in light of Christ. You can't read the Old Testament apart from Christ. And while the apostles' ministry was certainly unique, right, they had a unique authority. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit in their preaching and their writing. And so they're different from us in that regard. But this parable Jesus is teaching has relevance for you today as well. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you too can bring out treasures of the kingdom. You too can bring out treasures of the kingdom. Um, but, but I'm not a Bible scholar, you might say. I don't, I don't know my Bible as well as I, I feel like I should. We don't need to be a Bible scholar to share the very gospel that you yourself have believed. You probably haven't forgotten things about the gospel the longer you've been a Christian, right? You've probably been growing at some level. And you can always grow more in your understanding of the scriptures too. But you don't need to be a Bible scholar. These apostles certainly weren't, were they? Fishermen, tax collectors, right? But, but I don't like talking to other people, you might say. Well, perhaps not. Not, not all of us do, right? We, we have introverts among us. But notice that the master of the house didn't keep the treasure locked up. He brought it out to share. And at some point in your life, if you're a Christian, somebody brought out that treasure to share with you. Aren't you glad they did? Aren't you glad they did? But I'm not an apostle. I'm not a preacher, you might say. Uh, that's true. That's true. But realize that some of the most effective teachers of God's Word haven't been found in the pulpit. Some of the most effective teachers of God's Word have been found around the dinner table. They've been found uh, in, in, in their workplace. They've been found next to their child's bed just before they put them to sleep. Sharing truths of the kingdom in normal, everyday life. That has a far greater impact for the kingdom than we might realize. Which is very wonderful because most of us are very ordinary people. And so to be able to bring out that treasure in an ordinary way, in an ordinary setting, that's something ordinary people can do. 
Pray for those opportunities, um, and God will give them. But this is the first response that we see to Jesus in our text, understanding his teaching and bringing it out to share with others, right? Bringing that out to share with others. This is the response that all disciples, really at the end of the day, should have to Jesus and his kingdom, sharing his treasure with others. But as we look down to verses 53 and 58, we see an entirely different response, a response of rejection and offense, as we see the prophet of the kingdom rejected. The prophet of the kingdom rejected. Now Jesus has finished all of his parables, even this last little one in 51 and 52, and it's now time for him to leave Capernaum and to go back home to Nazareth, his hometown as we see in verses 53 and 54. He finishes his parables, he goes away from Capernaum, and he comes to his hometown. Now, this is actually Jesus' only recorded return to Nazareth in Matthew's Gospel. This is the only time he goes back there, um, and tragically, it is not a welcome homecoming. After he arrives in Nazareth, Jesus uh, teaches in the synagogue, and based on what Jesus teaches uh, in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, we, we can probably deduce that Jesus taught them about how he fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. Now, we can probably put the pieces together and, and guess uh, accurately that Jesus taught them about his kingdom and he taught them about how he was the promised Messiah. Right? Uh, and we would hope that the residents of Nazareth, who have known Jesus, remember, for his entire life, he grew up there. He spent probably close to 30 years there. They know him very, very well. We, we would hope that they would receive him warmly. Uh, that they would accept his teaching, that they would believe what he says and become his disciples. Um, but as the old saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. And Jesus receives a hostile response uh, from those in his old stomping grounds. We look at verse 54 and we see the response of the people of Nazareth. <clears throat> they are astonished when they hear his teaching. Astonished, shocked, uh, astounded. And, and they voice this out loud. They say, where did this man get this wisdom in these mighty works? Where did this man get this wisdom in these mighty works? Now this tells us something, uh, which is that when Jesus was growing up, he, he wasn't running around teaching in the same way he is now. He wasn't going around doing miracles. Otherwise, they wouldn't have this kind of response to him. Um, this didn't start occurring until his baptism, uh, until his earthly ministry began. So for the townspeople of Nazareth, to hear Jesus refer to himself as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, to hear him say, I'm the Messiah, to hear about his healings, his works, his, his exorcisms, would be quite shocking to them because they didn't see this part of Jesus growing up, right? So they object to his teaching. Where did he get this wisdom? They object to his mighty works. There's a sense of indignation here, isn't there? A sense that can be very common in very small towns, right? A local goes off, comes back with that uppity sense of superiority, right? Oh, look at that guy. And of course, Jesus is not prideful. He's not uppity. But it seems to be how his former neighbors perceive him. And we can see this indignation in their questioning of him. Where did he get this wisdom? Right? Where did he get these mighty works? They even question his, his person, right? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this him? Isn't his mother called Mary? Don't we know his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas? Don't we know his sisters? He's just like one of us. 
So where did he get these things? Where did he get all this wisdom and power? It's just Jesus, right? Just Yeshua ben Joseph. If we had to boil down their questions of Jesus, and we can maybe summarize them in this statement, who does Jesus think he is? Who does this guy think he is? Does he think he's better than us? It seems to be the heart, really, of what the townspeople are saying. And consider the situation. Jesus, the Son of God, has just explained who he really is from Scripture. And instead of even considering what he has taught them, their response is just to indignantly begin questioning and protesting his teaching, his power, his person. And Matthew tells us in verse 57 that ultimately they took offense at him. They took offense at him. It wasn't just that they said, ah, oh, no, he's wrong. Anyway, glad to have you back, Jesus. They are offended by him. They are scornful. They are disdainful towards him. The carpenter's son has gone off and now he fancies himself the son of God. That's what they're thinking. There was no offense at Jesus when he was just the carpenter's son. There was no offense at Jesus when he quietly worked with wood and served his mother and lived with his brothers and sisters. They had no issue with Jesus then. But when Jesus started making claims that demanded an evaluation and a position, then they were offended at him. Then they rejected him. And just like the townspeople of Nazareth, many people today respond to the, the uncomfortable aspects of Jesus and his teaching with offense. With offense. Now, sometimes this offense looks like outward rejection. Right? Some, uh, pff, no, I don't want to believe in that. That's ridiculous. Sometimes it looks like changing the biblical picture of Jesus. Well, Jesus said these things. He definitely didn't say these things. Right? He taught these good morals, but he didn't do these miracles. You may be familiar with the Jefferson Bible. Right? Thomas Jefferson cut out all of the supernatural works and statements of Christ and just kept what he thought were good moral teaching. Sometimes it looks like simply ignoring parts of Scripture. Offense at Jesus can look like any of those things. Perhaps you have a similar response to Jesus as well. You may find him acceptable as a religious teacher, teaching that we should do others uh, unto others as, as we would have them do unto you. you. You may find him acceptable as a moral example of selfless love. You may find him acceptable and, and unoffensive as a figure in history who started a movement that changed the world. But when you have to deal with Jesus' claims about himself, what is your response? When you have to deal with Jesus' claims about himself, what is your response? When you're confronted by Jesus' claims to be not just a rabbi or historical figure, but the divine Son of God, and Jesus makes some pretty clear statements to that effect, do you scoff? Do you think that's just an invention of his disciples? Is it offensive? When you're challenged by Jesus' clear statement that it is only through him that a person can be reconciled to God and have their sins forgiven, do you, do you ignore his words and push them off as too narrow-minded or too, too exclusive? When you're brought face-to-face -face with Jesus' statements about judging the living and the dead in righteous, wrathful judgment, which we see painted for us in Scripture, do you look the other way in favor of, of a more kind, gentler Jesus that's, that's more palatable to you? Right? Does that 
aspect of who Jesus is offend you? The townspeople of Nazareth were unwilling to accept what Jesus taught about himself. They had no issue with him up until that point. But when Jesus starts to make claims that he's the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, that he's the King of the Kingdom of Heaven, and that you must deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him, that you must renounce all you have to be his disciple, when Jesus starts making those claims, then the people are offended. They are offended. But Jesus does not seem particularly shocked by their response, does he? He himself is not indignant about their rejection. And he responds with a proverb. Um, he says, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. It seems that Jesus actually expected to be treated with this kind of offense, with this kind of rejection. Why? Because that's how all the prophets before Jesus were treated. Jesus, of course, is the ultimate prophet. We, we, we know that Christ is the prophet, priest, and king of his people. He's the ultimate prophet, the final messenger from God. And yet, even he is treated like all the prophets of old. To be a prophet is a pretty honorable thing. For God to say, I'm going to use you as my messenger, as my mouthpiece. That is an honorable thing. And yet, the people closest to the prophets, often the prophet's own countrymen, are the most hostile to him in Scripture. And in part, this is because the prophets bring a message that is hard for people to hear. Uh, we, we think about prophets and we, we think that they're talking about things that are going to happen far off, making predictions. And that happens sometimes. But most of the time, what the prophets are doing is coming to God's people and saying, you're sinning, you're going after idols, you're breaking God's law. Stop, turn back to him. God will bless you, he will save you, he will help you, he will forgive you. But if you don't, you'll face God's judgment. That's, that's really the core message of the prophets in Scripture. That's not a popular message. That's not a popular message. Usually the audience of the prophet, um, pridefully and in love with their, their idolatry, reject the prophet. Consider the prophet uh, Jeremiah, who, whose message from God was so unpopular that the officials of Jerusalem wanted to kill him and dropped him into this pit of mud. Right? He's just sinking in the mud, miserable. That's how they treated the prophet of God. Or consider the prophet Amos, uh, who prophesied that the king of Israel would die. And in response to this, the false priest of Israel scornfully rejects Amos and says, don't ever speak here again. Get out of here. Nehemiah 9.6 describes how Israel killed the prophets in order to pursue their idols. And in Luke 13, 34, Jesus describes Jerusalem as the city that kills the prophets. In other words, the people to whom the prophets are sent are often the most hostile and resistant to the prophet and their message. That's what Jesus means when he says they have no honor in their hometown or in their own household. The people closest to them are often the most hostile. Of course, this is never more true than with Jesus who is sent to the Jews first, to his own people first. Uh, John 1.11, though, describes how Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. We can certainly see that in our text today. And brothers and sisters, if Christ was rejected by those he came to, 
if you are going to bring out the treasure of the kingdom, you can expect to be rejected too. You can expect to be rejected too. Um, people generally are not offended if you say God loves you. People will receive that message, and that's true. Right? We can say that. That's true. But that's only part of the treasure. Right? That's only part of the message. When you say, uh, you are a sinner before a holy God, well, now people will probably be offended. How dare you say that to me? Now, of course, we want to bring in that part, and you're a sinner before a holy God, and God loves you so much that he sent his only son to die for your sins, and that if you turn from those sins and trust in Christ, God will forgive you and redeem you and bring you into his family, right? That's the whole picture that we want to bring across. But we cannot neglect the difficult parts of the gospel message, can we? Right? There has to be a problem for there to be a solution. There has to be bad news for there to be good news. Christ was not ashamed of that, and, and we must not be either, but we also must understand that if Christ was rejected by those he came to, you can expect to be rejected too. You may be sharing the gospel with a friend or family member, and they, they may get offended. They may get offended. Of course, we want to make sure our tone is right, that we're not being self-righteous or prideful or anything like that. We want to be humble, compassionate, loving. We want the only stumbling block to be Christ and not us. But people will be offended by Christ in you, or they'll be offended by the message of Christ that you bring. And so we need to come to grips with this and count the cost. What are we, what are we valuing more? The treasure of the kingdom or kind of a surface-level peace? Right? Are you willing to be rejected by men for the sake of Christ? As we look back at verse 58, we see that Jesus, much like the prophets of the Old Testament who spoke of God's coming judgment, Jesus pronounces a sort of judgment upon Nazareth here. We read in verse 58 that because of their unbelief, he did not do many mighty works there. Maybe he did a few for those who believed in him in that place, but it's pretty clear that the majority of people in Nazareth rejected him. The majority of them were offended at him, and so he did not do mighty works there. Now, I have no doubt that Jesus had a deep love for the people he grew up around, right? I mean, just at a human level, right? He's, he's a human. You can't help but love the people, right, in the town that you grew up with. You're going to form some attachments there. And I'm sure that Jesus had those. And yet, because of their unbelief, his father kept him from doing mighty works there. As Spurgeon remarks on this verse, he says, Why should he spend his sacred energy among a people who would not be profited thereby? Where he would have chosen to do most, he was forced to do least, because he saw that all he did would be wasted on them. And that is a sad place to be, where even the mighty works of Christ would be wasted upon such a hard and rebellious heart, such an unbelieving heart. So what a contrast we see between the disciples and Nazareth. The disciples are taught by Jesus, and they receive both old and new truths, treasures of the kingdom from him, and then they go and bring those treasures out to others. But Nazareth is offended by how Jesus fulfills the old in light of the new, and they seek to silence him. And these responses to Jesus continue today as, as men, women, and children encounter Christ and his teaching. 
And so, friend, as you consider these two responses to Christ, which one resembles yours? Do you desire and prayerfully pursue opportunity to bring out those treasures, old and new, that, that others may be able to learn about Christ? Or are, are you offended by some of Jesus' difficult teachings, seeking instead to silence who he really is? And, and even as genuine Christians, right, we can still struggle with offense at some of Jesus' teachings, right? Nobody loves to talk about hell. Do you take offense at the doctrine of hell, for example? Are you afraid to talk about hell with people? Right? Do, do we take offense at that? Unlike in school, of course, your personal response to Jesus is the difference between life and death, eternally speaking. Don't reject Jesus like Nazareth did. Don't take offense at him, but rather listen to him. Believe in him. And he will bring you into his kingdom. And you will be able to see all of the wonderful treasures that he has stored up there for you. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, you are the great teacher, the king of heaven. Taking on flesh that you might walk among sinful people and teach them. You might walk among sinful people and live a righteous life, that you might walk among sinful people and die in our place. And Lord, as you say, blessed is the one who is not offended by you. And Lord, we pray that you would give us boldness, wisdom, clarity, and compassion, and eagerness to bring out the treasures of your kingdom that we would desire to talk about your things with others, and that that, um, that that love for you would be so great as to minimize any fear we may have of man. And Father, we pray uh, that you would root out any areas where we may take offense at Christ or at his teaching, that you might deal with those, that we might repent of those as his disciples and humble ourselves before our Lord. Lord, we thank you that you are so good to teach us, and that your word is so rich for us. We pray, Lord, that you would do your work in us today. We ask for your help, Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.